Father in heaven, we do thank you for the civil book of Joel, the important messages that it gives us. One of the most important promises to us as Christians is the promise that is given that the Holy Spirit would be given. Thank you for that promise, and we thank you for fulfilling it in our lives. We thank you for assuring us that your plans will be put into place and will be enacted, and that you are working them out through the history of man. We ask, these, we ask that you will help us to understand these things and to rejoice in them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at Joel, Jesus Christ, our Restorer. And the book of Joel is all about restoring, despite the horrible things that happen. The name Joel means Yahweh is God. Hebrew is Yoel. There's no J sound in Hebrew or in Greek for that matter. Although another dozen persons mentioned in the Old Testament are named Joel, the prophet cannot, be, cannot with confidence be associated with, with any of these individuals. So there's lots of Joels, but as far as we can tell, none of the other Joels are this prophet Joel. Little is known of Joel, the son of Bethuel, other than what is described in his book. The date of composition is unknown. Some scholars suggest that the wording, phrasing, and descriptions found in the book indicate it was written during the reign of Joash, king of Judah, in the, in the ninth century. And I'll talk more about the many dating issues in a little bit. A popular notion in Joel's day was that the day of the Lord would actually serve to deliver and bless Israel and bring judgment on the surrounding nations. But Joel had a very different message. Along with the other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and Zebaniah, who also talked about the, the day of the Lord, Joel declared that the day of the Lord would mean punishment for Israel as well, not just punishment for the other nations. There are two main divisions in, in the book of Joel. The first section is desolation from the Lord, and the second session, section is deliverance of the Lord. So first there's going to come desolation, punishment, and then there, ultimately there's going to be deliverance for God's people. And I'll break those two major divisions down further as we go along. The book of Joel has two major sections with the turning point coming at 2, chapter 2, verse 18. In the first half of the book, the prophet urged the people to mourn over the devastating effects of a recent locust invasion. It warned that more locusts were coming and called the community to repent. So there was a devastating locust swarm invasion, and then there was going to be another locust invasion, if you will, of, of an army that would attack them. The second half of the book, having noted that the Lord did take pity on his people, then records the Lord's promise to call off the threatened invasion, restore the nation's crops, and vindicate his humiliated people. One of the most remarkable prophecies, of course, of Joel is, was the prediction and promise of the Holy Spirit. In Joel 2, 28 through 32, that was quoted by Peter, the 
Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God poured out his Holy Spirit on the early church in Jerusalem after Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. But the passage in Joel also predicts a similar outpouring will come upon Israel in a greater capacity in the end times. If you read this passage in Joel, not only does it talk about pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but it also talks about signs in the heavens, and those didn't happen in the first century. So when there's this greater outpouring of the Spirit on Israel, we will witness these signs in the heavens. Furthermore, Joel's predictions of devastating judgment and the eventual day of the Lord lined up with the description Jesus gave in Matthew. Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So the day of the Lord that Joel was predicting and the day of the Lord that Jesus spoke of are one and the same. As with most Old Testament prophecies, Joel's prophecy had a near and a far fulfillment. The plague of locusts pointed to the approaching Assyrian invasion of Judah, but it also pointed to the ultimate day of the Lord in the end times. So you might say there's a, there's a near and a far, and a really far. Because we know nothing of Joel other than what is included in his book, it's, uh, it's hard to pin down his time frame. Many of the words and descriptions he used indicate that he lived near Jerusalem, and he might have even been a priest or at least a, a prophet based in the temple. A possible time for his ministry is 825 to 9, 796 B.C. And as you'll see, there's much disputing about that, about when, when Joel issued his prophecy. The book of Joel highlights the certainty of God's judgment and the assurance of God's spirit. So we know that both of them are certain, God's judgment and God's salvation. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We must be beacons of light, love, and truth as we anticipate the day of the Lord. God's warnings are meant to draw us back to him. Like a warning sticker on an appliance, the events foretold in the Bible serve as a wake-up call to be aware and attentive, setting your sights on God. And that's the distinction, isn't it, between believers and unbelievers. The believers take heed to God's warning, and unbelievers are certainly oblivious to them. It's not that the warnings aren't there, but they just don't take heed. Before the ultimate peace comes the ultimate war. Even though massive armies will gather against Israel in the end times, Jesus Christ will single-handedly win that battle in the entire war. Joel's call to arms reminds us to prepare for spiritual warfare, to be ready for persecution, and to stand for God in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to him. And when I say spiritual warfare, I'm not talking about the silliness that goes for spiritual warfare in, in many circles, uh, in some Pentecostal circles, where they, 
they think that spiritual warfare is you know, talking to Satan and binding him and the demons. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, essentially we're talking about um, the, the means of grace, you know, prayer and Bible study and, and gathering together, fellowship and Lord's Supper and baptism. God can restore sin-wasted and afflicted years in your life. God is in the business of restoration. No matter what stage of life you're in right now, it's not too late to seek him with your whole heart. Don't settle for anything less than God himself. Now we're going to get into the thorny issues of dating Joel. When was Joel written? Well, scholars have come up with answers to this question that are just all over the board. Almost any century you want to pick, you know, any B.C. century, starting with the 9th century, you can find some scholars who will go for that. So the earliest one is um, the 9th century, the time of Joash, or late 7th century, or early 6th century, or late 6th century to mid-5th, or late 5th to mid-4th, or early 3rd century, as late as the 2nd century. So... That those estimates are just all over the board. The two that I've highlighted in red are the two most um, advocated at this time. So those are the two that we want to take a closer look at. So some scholars feel, and a lot, a lot of scholars today think that it was post-exilic. In other words, it's after 586 B.C. It's after the the uh, southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon. And some of the reasons that they give for believing this are that there's no mention here of the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel in the book of Joel. Um, Also, there's a references to priests, not kings. So they assume that this means that this is after the monarchy had ceased to exist. There was no king, they say, ruling over Israel at the time that Joel was written. Also, there's no mention of Assyria or Babylon. So they think that since the prophet Joel is not warning about the coming of Assyria or Babylon, that this must be after the exile. Uh, they also claim that Joel 3.2 refers to the Babylonian invasion that that had taken place already. And they claim that the mention of Greeks in chapter 3, verse 6, must imply post-exilic, a post-exilic situation. So if you remember the, uh, the sequence of empires that affected Israel, first there was the Assyrians. They attacked Israel, and they took the northern kingdom into captivity. So there were the Assyrians. Then there were the Babylonians, and they took Judah, the southern kingdom, into captivity. And then Judah was defeated by the, the Persians, and then the Persians were in turn defeated by the Greeks, and then eventually the Greeks by the Romans. But the, the people who advocate a post-exilic date for Joel, 
they say that this mention of Greeks means it's got to be the time when, when Greek is a major power in the Middle East. That's, that's the claim anyway. But let's, let's take a look at each of those and see if, that's, if those are really good reasons. Those who favor the post-exilic date advance the argument that Joel fails to mention the northern kingdom or even idolatrous high places. So they think that this must be after Judah and the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by Babylon. But it should be pointed out that neither of those things are mentioned in Nahum or Zephaniah either. They're other prophets. Although both of them are admitted to date from the 7th century prior to the Babylonian exile. So just the fact that the, the, the northern kingdom isn't mentioned, that does not really prove conclusively that Joel is post-exilic. There was no particular occasion in Joel to mention the northern kingdom by name, for these prophetic discourses were directed only against Judah. He was speaking to Judah, so the fact that he doesn't mention the northern kingdom is not particularly significant. It should be added that Joel occasionally employs the name Israel in such a way that it cannot be demonstrated conclusively whether it refers to the entire 12 tribes, you know, all of Israel, or only to the northern kingdom. Therefore, it is by no means certain that he ignored the latter completely. So he may have been talking about the northern kingdom when he mentioned Israel. We can't be sure. There is no mention of a king in the book of Joel. So the elders and priests seem to bear the responsibility of national leadership. So at the time that Joel was written, we don't read anything about a king. And it appears that the elders and the priests were the leaders in the country at that time. But the lack of reference to a king does not necessarily suggest a time after the monarchy had ceased to exist. This could simply be an indication that the king was a minor at the time of Joel, and that regents ruled in his place. So there may have been a king, but he was, hasn't grown up yet. That's why he's not mentioned. According to 2 Kings 11.4, Joash was crowned king at the age of seven. And his uncle, Jehoiada, is said to have exercised a controlling influence in Judah, even to the day of his death, Jehoiada's death, in the latter part of Joash's reign. Do you remember the story of Joash? He was the one that, after his father had died, Athaliah, the only, the only queen of Judah, she, the, the wicked queen of Judah, she became queen, ruler of Judah, and she killed all of, all of her grandchildren. But there was one that got away, and that was Joash. He was a little boy at the time. So they, they hid him for a while, and then finally... Adaliah was assassinated and, and Joash was crowned king when he was still a child. But it, it may be that, that the book of Joel dates from this time before, uh, before Joash had grown up. Another consideration is that the array of enemies which are mentioned in Joel as threatening Judah fit the 9th century better than the post-exilic period. There's no reference to the Assyrians or the Babylonians to say nothing of the Persians or the Greeks. 
the foes of Judah are stated to be the Phoenicians, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Edomites. So these were the enemies of Judah at the time, and that certainly sounds more like the ninth century than the time of Assyria or Babylon. This points to a period when Assyria and Babylon posed no threat. They hadn't yet come on the scene of, of world history. But Egypt and the surrounding neighbors of Israel were still strong and aggressive. And this is the uh, another consideration of, of why, uh, why the uh, post-exilic advocates think that Joel is post-exilic. In the first uh, two verses of chapter 3, it says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my, inher my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations. So the, the advocates of the post-exilic view think that this is referring to the Babylonian captivity and, and it's predicting that they will eventually come back from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, some, some translations are even more explicit. They say this is the, the Net Bible. The previous one was from the ESV. This is the Net Bible. For look, in those days and at that time I will turn the exiles to Judah and Jerusalem. Then I will Gather all the nations, I will enter into judgment against them. They are concerning my people, Israel, who are my inheritance, whom they scattered among the nations. So some people are, are certain that the, the gathering of Judah from, from Babylon means that it had to be written post-exilic. Well, really, if you, if you take that position, you're, you really are... saying that there can't be such a thing as, as um, predictive prophecy because certainly nobody could have predicted that Judah would eventually come back from captivity when they hadn't even gone into captivity yet. You couldn't predict that uh, centuries in advance. Well, why not? I mean, why couldn't the God of the universe inspire someone to predict that, that Israel, that Judah would go into captivity and then eventually come out? centuries before it happened. Well, there's no reason that that couldn't happen if, you, if we truly believe that, that God is sovereign. And then there's that mention of the Greeks in chapter 3, verse 6. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So it does talk about the Greeks. Well, does that prove that, it was, that the book was post-exilic? The reference to the Greeks is not to the major world power of the 4th century, the time of Alexander the Great, when uh, Greece became a dominant power in, in the Middle East, but to a remote country involved in slave trading. So at the time that Joel was written, the Greeks are not a major world power. They're still off in the distance, off in the fringes of, of the known world from the, from the perspective of the Middle East. Uh, 
Greek trade in the Levant is known from the Assyrian from Assyrian sources as early as the 8th century. So just the fact that the Greeks are mentioned, that doesn't prove that it's post-exilic. The Levant, if you're not familiar with that term, it refers to that region of the, of the uh, at the east end of the Mediterranean Sea, including Israel, Lebanon, Syria, that, that area. So let's look at the pre-exilic position before 586 BC, actually much earlier than 586 BC. So what, what do the proponent, proponents of the, of the pre-exilic position say? Well, the mention of Phoenicia, Philistia, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom. That sounds more like the ninth century. We talked about that. The reference to priests may fit the ninth century situation when Athaliah, there's that wicked queen that usurped her son and tried to wipe out her grandchildren, but Joash escaped. Joel 3.6 mentions the inhabitants of Israel being carried far away by Greeks. So the Greeks are far away. They're off on the fringes. They're not a dominant power in the Middle East. And the evidence suggests Amos, the prophet Amos, borrowed from Joel. I haven't talked about that yet, so I will. Uh, Joel's style is more like pre-exilic writers than, than the post-exilic writers. There is a distinct evidence of borrowing between Amos and Joel, those two prophets. For example, both Joel 3.18 and Amos 9.13 contain the promise, the mountains shall drop sweet wine. That, both prophets use that expression. While Joel might possibly have quoted from Amos, the contextual indications are that it was the other way around that Amos borrowed from Joel. Joel was first. He was before Amos. Another example is found in Joel 3.16, where in the midst of a prophetic discourse, he says, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. This same verse appears at the beginning of the prophecy of Amos. And it may fairly be inferred that Amos was using it as a sort of sermon text from which he developed his, mess, his first message. So Joel had written that, that expression, the Lord shall roar out of Zion, and then later on Amos is using that as the basis of his message. On this basis, then, Joel must have been written earlier than Amos, that is, earlier than 755 B.C. So... I think there's good reason to believe that Joel came before Amos and well before the, the Babylonian exile. The, the linguistic evidence perfectly accords with the early date and makes a theory of post-exilic composition quite untenable. It is fair to say that the arguments for a late date are largely based upon humanistic philosophical assumptions rather than upon reasonable deductions from the data of the text itself. So like I was pointing out, that it all has to do with that idea that there can't be such a thing as predictive prophecy, at least not centuries in advance. That it has to be post-exilic, because otherwise how could you predict that 
that Judah would come back from Babylonian captivity, but they hadn't even gone into Babylonian captivity yet. Well, we think otherwise, don't we? So let's let's take a look look now at the the actual structure of the book and examine that a little bit. So first of all, there's the desolation from the Lord in that, in that first section of the, of the book. There is an historical aspect, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And then there is a prophetical aspect, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. It is not uncommon, as you, as you know, for a prophet to have both a near view and uh, the immediate historical situation, that's the near view, and a far view, the future application of his, in his message. So we recognize those two aspects that are quite common in the prophets. The opening verses of Joel seem to indicate that a literal locust plague had swept the land. Four different Hebrew terms are used in verse 4. The terms may be synonymous, they may all refer to the same thing, though some have seen them as referring to four different species of locusts or as reflecting different stages in a locust physical development. So that may be what they refer to. When I was in seminary, one of the students that I went to seminary with was from Taiwan, and his undergraduate degree was in entomology. So he, he studied insects. Uh, and he wrote a, a thesis on these locusts in the, in the book of, of Joel. So I'm going to have to get a copy of his, his thesis, and I'm sure that I will learn from his uh, unique perspective on the locusts of Joel. In verse 4, the various terms uh, within an overall repetitive structure, it keeps saying what the, you know, this type of locust has left, this type of locust is eaten. And then it, what this type of locust has left, another type of locust is eaten. So this is repeated four times. So it likely depicts wave after wave of destructive locusts, each of which left an ever smaller amount of vegetation for the next until everything was devoured. devoured. So each, first there was one wave of locusts and they ate lots of stuff, and then another wave of locusts and they ate some more. After the fourth wave of locusts, there wasn't anything left. That's an exhortation for God's people to humble themselves before him is followed by the prophet's supplication to God because of the plague. So the prophet urges the people to, to humble themselves because of the locust plague. And then he appeals to God to restore Israel after this devastating plague. With a sarcastic touch, the prophet told the drunkards to weep and wail because no wine was available. Uh, the innumerable swarms had devoured the grapevine, so there wasn't any wine available for the drunkards. So that really hits home, huh? <laughs> the, the priests weep because the destruction of the land's vegetation meant there could be no grain offerings, which included flour and oil, or drink offerings, which included wine. So it affected everybody. It affected the drunkards, it affected the priests. The list of destruction draws attention to the extent of the devastation. 
eight items are specified, suggesting that the locusts were more than thorough. Wheat, barley, the vine, fig tree, pomegranate, palm, apple tree, and all the trees of the land. Let's see, a, a sevenfold list. If there had only been a list of seven items, that would have indicated completeness. Seven is the symbol of completeness. But by adding an eighth item to the list, the prophet stressed the utter and total destruction caused by the chaos. It was just, by the locusts, it was just beyond complete. It was even, even worse than that. And of course, this is the point where I was going to play this video, but when I try to play it, you won't go. So, if you want to, want to see that, maybe I can show it to you on YouTube afterwards. It would give you a good idea of what a, a locust plague is really like. From the immediate past, the prophet turned to the immediate future. So now we've seen the historical aspect of this locust invasion, now the prophetical aspect. The immediate future. Blow the trumpet in Zion, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So this indicates a day of judgment. And there's two aspects of this, of course. That there's an there's a immediate coming judgment, and then there's a far, far away aspect of it. The literal locusts in the past are now used as pictures of the invading northern army of the future. So the locusts are used as a picture, as a metaphor of the coming invasion of humans, of, of an army. And in view of this, the people are called to a solemn past. The people are called to humble themselves, to change their ways under the imminent threat of this invading army. The destruction is described in chapter 2, the first 11 verses, and then their contrition is commanded in, the, in verses 12 through 17 of Chapter 2. So the prophet Joel is warning them about the destruction that is coming if they don't repent, if they don't change their ways. And then in the second part of the chapter, he's urging them to, to do just that, to repent and change their ways. The prophet announces the good news, the deliverance of the Lord. God will send deliverance from destruction in both the present and and in the future. The northern enemy will be removed and restoration will come from God to his land and my people will never again be put to shame. So if you remember, Assyria invaded Israel and took that, the northern kingdom captive. But then later on, they invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, but God miraculously intervened and the Assyrians were not successful in conquering Judah. So this, this time in Joel is one of the few times that Judah did respond positive, positively to the warning of a prophet. We, we, uh, 
we get discouraged when we see time after time when prophets, the prophets of God, brought their warnings to Israel or to Judah, and there was no response, at least no positive response. But this is one time when there was a response, when the people did repent, and God, God, God did miraculously intervene. Apparently, the people responded positively to the prophet's warning. For verse 18 informs us that God's devotion or zeal for his land was rekindled and that he took pity on his people. The Lord would change from enemy to defender. So he, he described himself as leading this army against Judah, but now he's defending Judah. And he promises that he would drive the army he had been, been leading into the sea. And that's what often happens when there's a, um, a locust plague. They're very much dependent upon the wind. And sometimes the, the locust plague would end when the, when the winds changed direction and blew the locusts into the sea. And so God uses that as a, an analogy, a picture of what he's going to do to Judah's enemies in this army. He also promised that he would restore the crops the locusts had devoured. In place of drought and famine, he would send the rains at the proper time. His people would acknowledge him as the only true God. And, and this is the, the thing that catches our attention. And he would never again subject to them, subject them to such humiliate, humiliating judgment. He says, and my people will never again be put to shame. So what, what are we to make of that? My people will never again be put to shame. Because God's people were subsequently humiliated on several occasions. You know, this, is, this is 9th century BC. There were several times when Judah was humiliated. So what does it mean that my people will never be humiliated again? So this, this promise sounds kind of hollow. You know. However, just as God's warnings of judgment are often conditional and can be averted by repentance, so his promises of prosperity are often contingent on their recipients remaining loyal to God. So yes, God would see to it that they were never humiliated again if they would be faithful to God, which, of course, they didn't do. So ultimately, this promise of, of God's people never being humiliated again, the people of Israel will not be completely, ultimately fulfilled until the time of the millennial kingdom. The promise given here, while obviously implicitly conditional, was an honest statement of God's commitment to his people. So God did really mean this. You know, if you remain faithful, I will see to it that you are never put to shame again. If they had sustained their renewed commitment to him, he would sustain his blessings. So this promise of future blessing, the pivotal phrase, and it shall come to pass afterwards, that introduces this section. And it indicates a shift from the near view to the far view. And it shall come to pass afterwards. It is a prediction of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit upon his people in revival. First Joel speaks of the restoration of Judah. 
then of the condemnation of their enemies. This is followed by a proclamation to the nations to prepare for the final battle. And of course, we know from the New Testament, from the book of Revelation, that that's Armageddon. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people in my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now, as I was reading various commentaries about this, I was somewhat, somewhat distressed to learn that many commentators today think that this is not, this is not to be taken literally. Uh, here's an example of that from a book called Handbook on the Prophets, which I generally like very much, but I, I take issue with this particular statement. The judgment cannot be literal, for the nations responsible for Judah's exile have disappeared from the scene. Rather than describing a literal day of judgment, it is more likely that the prophecy was fulfilled gradually throughout history as these nations and peoples passed from the scene. So what these scholars are saying is that, well, we can't take this literally because these nations aren't around anymore. Well, the fact that we can't definitively identify these nations today doesn't mean that there aren't any nations that are dominated by these people groups. And of course, it's even possible that as we get nearer to the end times that God will consolidate these people groups into, into nations. So I, I don't buy the idea that just because we can't identify these nations today, that doesn't, you know, that means that we, that we, that this is not to be taken literally and that it's fulfilled gradually over time. And the same thing with this, this uh, idea of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the nations being gathered in the, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh has judged. And people haven't been able to identify this Valley of Jehoshaphat definitively. But it's, it's been generally thought that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley east of Jerusalem. Some people say that it's the Valley of Hinnom south of Jerusalem. But either way, it's a, it's a valley near Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Kidron Valley is the, the valley, is valley of Blessing. The Hinnom Valley is the Valley of Slaughter, but they're two valleys close to Jerusalem and they eventually merge, they run into each other. But the many scholars today don't think that, don't take that literally either. Uh, one says, also in the Handbook of the Prophets, the name is probably symbolic and chosen because its meaning encapsulates what would transpire there. So they don't see that the Valley of Jehoshaphat as an actual place. I think it's just a symbolic valley. And this is uh, from a footnote in the Net Bible. Many modern scholars think that Joel's valley is part of an idealized and non-literal scene of judgment. 
Well, I, I just don't buy that. I think that this statement about God gathering the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat and judging them, I think it does actually refer to a, a literal place and a literal point in time when this judgment will occur in the future. I don't think it's something that happened gradually over the centuries. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to point out in the book of Joel In the book of Isaiah, and also in Micah, it says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So this is talking about a time of peace that will come upon the world in the Millennial Kingdom. They will beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. But uh, in the book of Joel, we see just the reverse of that. Because before that time of peace comes, in the Millennial Kingdom, there's going to be a time of war. So Joel is urging people, put your plow shares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. So it's just the reverse of that. He's telling people to prepare for war because war is coming before we get to this time of peace. So that's just another interesting thing in the book of Joel. I think it's quite possible that Isaiah and Micah were taking that expression from the book of Joel and, and turning it around for, to describe the, the coming millennial kingdom. So we're, we're more familiar with the uh, statement of Isaiah and Micah, but I think that Joel likely was actually the first one. All of this will be climaxed by the salvation of the Lord as the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then there's one last thing that I wanted to talk about that I think is an important principle that uh, applies to us as Christians today. An important principle from the book of Joel. Joel is talking about Judah after the the time of the locust invasion and how he would restore Judah at that time. He said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And I think that, that principle is, is an important Christian assurance, an important assurance to Christians that no matter what trials and heartaches and disappointments we may have experienced, they will, we will find restoration in Jesus Christ to some extent in this life, but certainly much more in the world to come. Father in heaven, we thank you for the messages that you have given us in this brief book of Joel. Promises that you have given us that your wonderful plan of salvation is certain. That you have given us your Holy Spirit as you promised to make it possible for us to live in service to you and in service to one another, our fellow man. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to take courage 
with the promises that you've given us, then your kingdom will ultimately triumph and be available on this earth. We thank you for giving us a prominent place in that and helping us to, to share that with mankind. Thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.